Chapter 8, Section 6 of The Promise of American Life by Herbert Crowley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by The Progressing America Project. Chapter 8, Section 6 Militarism and Nationality. The foregoing considerations in respect to the existing international situation of Germany bring me to another and final aspect of the relation in Europe between nationality and democracy. One of the most difficult and, be it admitted, one of the most dubious problems raised by any attempt to establish a constructive relationship between those two principles hangs on the fact that hitherto national development has not apparently made for international peace. The nations of Europe are, to all appearances, as belligerent as were the former European dynastic states. Europe has become a vast camp, and its governments are spending probably a larger proportion of the resources of their countries for military and naval purposes than did those of the eighteenth century. How can these warlike preparations, in which all the European nations share, and the warlike spirit which they have occasionally displayed, be reconciled with the existence of any constructive relationship between the national and the democratic ideas? The question can be best answered by briefly reviewing the claims already advanced, on behalf of the national principle. I have asserted from the start that the national principle was wholly different in origin and somewhat different in meaning from the principle of democracy. What has been claimed for nationality is, not that it can be identified with democracy, but that as a political principle it remained unsatisfied without an infusion of democracy. But the extent to which this infusion can go and the forms which it takes are determined by a logic and a necessity very different from that of an absolute democratic theory. National politics have from the start aimed primarily at efficiency, that is, at the successful use of the force resident in the state, to accomplish the purposes desired by the sovereign authority. Among the group of states inhabited by Christian peoples, it has been gradually been discovered that the efficient use of force is contingent in a number of respects upon its responsible use and that its responsible use means a limited policy of external aggrandizement and a partial distribution of political power and responsibilities. A national polity, however, always remains an organization based upon force. In internal affairs it depends at bottom for its success, not merely upon public opinion, but, if necessary, upon the strong arm. It is a matter of government and coercion, as well as a matter of influence and persuasion. So in its external relations, its standing and success have depended, and still depend, upon the efficient use of force, just in so far as force is demanded by its own situation and the attitudes of its neighbors and rivals. The Democrats who disparage efficient national organization are, at bottom, merely seeking to exercise the power of physical force in human affairs by the use of pious incantations and heavenly words. That they will never do. The Christian warrior must accompany the evangelist, and Christians are not by any means angels. It is none the less true that the modern nations control the expenditure of more force, in a more responsible manner, than have any preceding political organizations, and it is none the less true that a further development of the national principle will mean in the end the attachment of still stricter responsibilities to the use of force, both in the internal and external policies of modern nations. War may be, and has been, a useful and justifiable engine of national policy. It is justifiable, moreover, 
not merely in such a case as our civil war in which a people fought for their own national integrity it was i believe justifiable in the case of the two wars which preceded the formation of the modern german empire these wars may indeed be considered as decisive instances prussia did not drift into them as we drifted into the civil war they were deliberately provoked by bismarck at a favorable moment because they were necessary to the unification of the german people under prussian leadership and i do not hesitate to say that he can be justified in the assumption of this enormous responsibility the german national organization means increased security happiness and opportunity of development for the whole german people and inasmuch as the selfish interests of austria and france blocked the path bismarck had his sufficient warrant for a deliberately planned attack no doubt such an attack and its results injured france and the french people just as it has benefited germany but france had to suffer that injury as a penalty for the part she had as a matter of policy played in german affairs for centuries a united france had helped to maintain for her own purposes a divided germany and when germany herself became united it was inevitable as bismarck foresaw in eighteen forty eight that french opposition must be forcibly removed and some of the fruits of french aggression be reclaimed that the restitution demanded went further than was necessary i fully believe but the partial abuse of victory does not diminish the legitimacy of the german aggression a war waged for an excellent purpose contributes more to human amelioration than a merely artificial peace such as that established by the holy alliance the unification of germany and italy has not only helped to liberate the energies of both the german and the italian people but it has made the political divisions of europe conform much more nearly to the lines within which the people of europe can loyally and fruitfully associate with one another in fact the whole national movement if it has increased the preparations for war has diminished in number of probable causes thereof and it is only by diminishing the number of causes whereby a nation has more to gain from victory than it has to lose by defeat that war among the civilized powers can be gradually extinguished at the present time it is as we have seen the international situation and the national ambitions of russia and germany which constitute the chief threat to european peace germany's existing position in europe depends upon its alliance with austria-hungary the habsburg empire is an incoherent and unstable state which is held together only by dynastic ties and external pressure the german the austrian and the hungarian interests all demand the perpetuation of the habsburg dominion but it is doubtful whether in the long run its slavic population will not combine with its blood neighbors to break the bond but whether the german austrian and hungarian interests does or does not prevail the fundamental national interests which are compromised by the precarious stability of austria-hungary are alone sufficient to make disarmament impossible disarmament means the preservation of europe in its existing condition and such a policy enforced by means of international guarantees would be almost as inimical to the foundation of a permanent and satisfactory international system now as it was in eighteen twenty the fact has to be recognized that the ultimate object of a peaceable and stable european international situation cannot in all probability be reached without many additional wars and the essential point is that these wars when they come should like the wars between austria or france and prussia or like our civil war 
be fought to accomplish a desirable purpose and should be decisive in result. Modern conflicts between efficiently organized nations tend to obtain just this character. They are fought for a defensible purpose, and they accomplish a definite result. The penalties of defeat are so disastrous that warfare is no longer wantonly incurred, and it will not be provoked at all by nations, such as Italy or France, who have less to gain from victory than they have to lose from defeat. Moreover, the cost of existing armaments is so crushing that an ever-increasing motive exists in favor of their ultimate reduction. This motive will not operate as long as the leading powers continue to have unsatisfied ambitions which look practicable, but eventually it will necessarily have its effect. Each war, as it occurs, even if it does not finally settle some conflicting claims, will most assuredly help to teach the warring nations just how far they can go, and will help, consequently, to restrict its subsequent policy within practicable and probably inoffensive limits. It is by no means an accident that England and France, the two oldest European nations, are the two whose foreign policies are best defined and, so far as Europe is concerned, least offensive. For centuries these powers fought and fought, because one of them had aggressive designs which apparently or really affected the welfare of the other. But the result of this prolonged rivalry has been a constantly clearer understanding of their respective national interests. Clear-headed and moderate statesmen like Talleyrand recognized immediately after the revolution that the substantial interests of a liberalized France in Europe were closely akin to those of Great Britain, and again and again in the nineteenth century this prophecy was justified. Again and again, the two powers were brought together by their interests, only to be again divided by a tradition of antagonism and misunderstanding. At present, however, they are probably on better terms than ever before in the history of their relations, and this result is due to the definite and necessarily unaggressive character of their European interests. They have finally learned the limits of their possible achievement, and could transgress them only by some act of folly. In the course of another fifty years, the limits of possible aggression by Germany and Russia in Europe will probably be very much better defined than they are today. These two powers will seek, at the favorable moment, to accomplish certain aggressive purposes which they secretly or openly entertain, and they will succeed or fail. Each success or failure will probably be decisive in certain respects, and will remove one or more existing conflicts of interest or ambiguities of position. Whether this progressive specification of the practicable foreign policies of the several powers will soon or will ever go as far as to make some general international understanding possible is a question which no man can answer. But as long as the national principle retains its vitality, there is no other way of reaching a permanent and fruitful international settlement. That any one nation, or any small group of nations, can impose its dominion upon Europe is contrary to every lesson of European history. Such a purpose would be immeasurably beyond the power, even of 90 million Germans, or 150 million Russians, or even beyond the power of 90 million Germans allied with 100 million Russians. Europe is capable of combining more effectually than ever before to resist any possible revival of imperialism. And the time will come when Europe, threatened by the aggression of any one domineering power, can call other continents to her assistance. The limits to the possible expansion of any one nation are established by certain fundamental and venerable political conditions. The penalties of persistent transgression, 
would be not merely a sentence of piracy similar to that passed on napoleon i but a constantly diminishing national vitality on the part of the aggressor as long as the national principle endures political power cannot be exercised irresponsibly without becoming inefficient and sterile inimical as the national principle is to the carrying out either of a visionary or a predatory foreign policy in europe it does not imply any similar hostility to a certain measure of colonial expansion in this as in many other important respects the constructive national democrat must necessarily differ from the old school of democratic liberals a nationalized democracy is not based on abstract individual rights no matter whether the individual lives in colorado paris or calcutta its consistency is chiefly a matter of actual historical association in the midst of a general christian community of nations a people that lack the power of basing their political association on an accumulated national tradition and purpose is not capable either of nationality or democracy and that is the condition of the majority of asiatic and african peoples a european nation can undertake the responsibility of governing these politically disorganized societies without any necessary danger to its own national life such a task need not be beyond its physical power because disorganized peoples have a comparatively small power of resistance and a few thousand resolute europeans can hold in submission many million asiatics neither does it conflict with the moral basis of a national political organization because at least for a while the asiatic population may well be benefited by more orderly and progressive government submission to such a government is necessary as a condition of subsequent political development the majority of asiatic and african communities can only get a fair start politically by some such preliminary process of tutelage and the assumption by a european nation of such a responsibility is a desirable phase of national discipline and a frequent source of genuine national advance neither does an aggressive colonial policy make for unnecessary or meaningless wars it is true of course that the colonial expansion increases the number of possible occasions for dispute among the expanding nations but these disputes have the advantage of rarely turning on questions really vital to the future prosperity of a european nation they are just the sort of international differences of interest which ought to be settled by arbitration or conciliation because both of the disputants have so much more to lose by hostilities than they would have to gain by military success a dispute turning upon a piece of african territory would if it waxed into war involve the most awful and dangerous consequences in europe the danger of european wars except for national purposes of prime importance carries its consequence into africa and asia france for instance was very much irritated by the continued english occupation of egypt in spite of certain solemn promises of evacuation and the expedition of marchon which ended in the fashoda incident indirectly questioned the validity of the british occupation of egypt by making that occupation strategically insecure in spite however of the deliberate manner in which france raised this question and of the highly irritated condition of french public opinion she could not when the choice had to be made afford the consequences of a franco-english war in the end she was obliged to seek compensation elsewhere in africa and abandon her occupation of fashoda this incident is typical and it points directly to the conclusion 
that wars will very rarely occur among European nations over disputes as to colonies, unless the political situation in Europe is one which itself makes war desirable or inevitable. A Bismarck could handle a Fashoda incident so as to provoke hostilities, but in that case Fashoda, like the Hohenzollern candidacy in Spain, would be a pretext, not a cause. The one contemporary instance in which a difference of colonial interests has caused a great war is the recent conflict between Russia and Japan, and in this instance the issues raised by the dispute were essentially different from the issues raised by a dispute over a colonial question between two European nations. The conflict of interests turned upon matter essential to the future prosperity of Japan, while at the same time the war did not necessarily involve dangerous European complications. The truth is that colonial expansion by modern national states is to be regarded, not as a cause of war, but as a safety valve against war. It affords an arena in which the restless and adventurous members of a national body can have their fling without dangerous consequences, while at the same time it satisfies the desire of a people for some evidence of and opportunity for national expansion. The nations which, one after another, have recognized the limits of their expansion in Europe have been those which have adopted a more or less explicit policy of colonial acquisition. Spain was, indeed, a great colonial power at a time when her policy in Europe continued to be aggressive, but her European aggression soon undermined her national vitality, and her decadence in Europe brought her colonial expansion to a standstill. Portugal and Holland were too small to cherish visions of European aggrandizement, and they naturally sought an outlet in Asia and Africa for their energies. After Great Britain had passed through her revolutionary period, she made rapid advances as a colonial power, because she realized that her insular situation rendered a merely defensive European policy obligatory. France made a failure of her American and Asiatic colonies, as long as she cherished schemes of European aggrandizement. Her period of colonial expansion, Algeria apart, did not come until after the Franco-Prussian War and the death of her ambition for a Rhine frontier. Bismarck was opposed to colonial development, because he believed that Germany should husband her strength for the preservation and the improvement of her standing in Europe. But Germany's power of expansion demanded some outlet during a period of European rest. Throughout the reign of the present emperor she has been picking up colonies, wherever she could in Asia and Africa, and she cherishes certain plans for the extension of German influence in Asia Minor. It is characteristic of the ambitious international position of Germany that she alone among the European powers, except the peculiar case of Russia, is expectant of an increase of power both in Europe and other continents. In the long run Germany will, like France, discover that under existing conditions an aggressive colonial and aggressive European policy are incompatible. The more important her colonies become and the larger her oceanic commerce, the more Germany lays herself open to injury from a strong maritime power, and the more hostages she is giving for good behavior in Europe. Unless a nation controls the sea, colonies are, from a military point of view, a source of weakness. The colonizing nation is in the position of a merchant, who increases his business by means of a considerable increase of his debts. His use of the borrowed capital may be profitable, but nonetheless he makes his standing at the time of an emergency much more precarious. In the same way, colonies add to the responsibilities of a nation and scatter its military resources, 
and a nation placed in such a situation is much less likely to break the peace. The economic and political development of Asia and Africa by the European powers is in its infancy, and no certain predictions can be made as to its final effects upon the political relations among civilized nations. Many important questions in respect thereto remain ambiguous. What, for instance, are the limits of a practicable policy of colonial expansion? In view of her peculiar economic condition and her threatened decrease in population, have those limits been transgressed by France? Have they been transgressed by Great Britain? Considering the enormous increase in British responsibilities imposed by the maritime expansion of Germany, will not Great Britain be obliged to adopt a policy of concentration rather than expansion? Is not her partial retirement from American waters the first step in such a policy? Is not the Japanese alliance a dubious device for the partial shifting of burdens, too heavy to bear? How long can Great Britain afford to maintain her existing control of the sea? Is there any way of ending such a control, save either by the absolute exhaustion of Great Britain, or by the establishment of a stable international system under adequate guarantees? Will the economic development of Asia lead to the awakening of other Asiatic states like Japan, and the rearrangement of international relations, for the purpose of giving them their appropriate places? A multitude of such questions are raised by the transformation which is taking place, from a European international system into a political system composed chiefly of European nations, but embracing the whole world. And these questions will prove to be sufficiently difficult of solution. But in spite of the certainty that colonial expansion will, in the end, merely transfer to a larger area, the conflicts of idea and interest, whose effects have hitherto chiefly been confined to Europe. In spite of this certainty, the process of colonial expansion is a wholly legitimate aspect of national development, and is not necessarily inimical to the advance of democracy. It will not make immediately for a permanent international settlement, but it is accomplishing a work without which a permanent international settlement is impossible, and it indubitably places every colonizing nation in a situation which makes the risk of hostilities dangerous compared to the possible advantages of military success. The chief object of this long digression has, I hope, now been achieved. My purpose has been to exhibit the European nations as a group of historic individuals with purposes, opportunities, and limitations analogous to those of actual individuals. An individual has no meaning apart from the society in which his individuality has been formed. A national state is capable of development only in relation to the society of more or less nationalized states, in the midst of which its history has been unfolded. The growing and maturing individual is he who comes to take a more definite and serviceable position in his surrounding society, he who performs excellently a special work adapted to his abilities. The maturing nation is in the same way the nation which is capable of limiting itself to the performance of a practicable and useful national work, a work in which some specific respect accelerates the march of Christian civilization. There is no way in which a higher type of national life can be obtained without a corresponding individual improvement on the part of its constituent members. There is, similarly, no way in which a permanently satisfactory system of international relations can be secured, save by the increasing historical experience and effective self-control of related nations. Any country which declares that it is too good, or too democratic, 
to associate with other nations, and share the responsibilities and opportunities resulting from such association, is comparable to the individual who declares himself to be too saintly for association with his fellow countrymen. Whatever a man or a nation gains by isolation, he or it necessarily loses in the discipline of experience, with its possible fruits of wisdom and self-control. Association is a condition of individuality. International relations are a condition of nationality. A universal nation is as much a contradiction in terms as a universal individual. A universal nation is as much a contradiction in terms as a universal individual. A nation seeking to destroy other nations is analogous to a man who seeks to destroy the society in which he was born. Little by little European history has been teaching this lesson, and in the course of time the correlation of national development with the improvement and definition of international relations will probably be embodied in some set of international institutions. In the meantime, the existing rivalries and enmities among European states must not be underestimated, either in their significance or their strength. In a way, those rivalries have become more intense than ever before, and it is only too apparent that the many-headed rulers of modern nations are as capable of cherishing personal and national dislikes as were the sovereign kings of other centuries. These rivalries and enmities will not be dissolved by kind words and noble sentiments. The Federation of Europe, like the unification of Germany, will never be brought about by congresses and amicable resolutions. It can be effected only by the same old means of blood and iron. The nations will never agree upon a permanent settlement until they have more to gain from peace than from military victory. But such a time will be postponed all the longer unless the nations, like France, Italy, England and the United States, which are at present sincerely desirous of peace, keep as well armed as their more belligerent neighbors. When the tug comes, the issue will depend upon the effective force which such nations, when loyally combined, can exert. It would be fatal, consequently, for the Pacific powers to seek to establish peace by a partial diminution of their military efficiency. Such an action would merely encourage the belligerent powers to push their aggressive plans to the limit. The former must, on the contrary, keep as well armed as their resources and policy demand. Nationality is impaired and the national principle is violated, just as soon as a nation neglects any sort of efficiency which is required, either by its international position or by its national purposes. End of chapter 8